Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 44, and I'm Roger Pang, and I'm here with Hillary Parker. And uh, we, this, is, this is our first trans-global episode of Not So Standard Deviations. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. But is it trans-global or trans-Pacific? Well, I was trying to—well, I guess for, since you live in California, it truly is trans-Pacific. I was talking to uh, my Elizabeth Matsui, my other podcast, and she lives in Baltimore, and we couldn't figure out, like, which ocean <laughs> you go over. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that one, it's more ambiguous which one you would go over. Yeah. Right. So yeah. this is trans-Pacific. I guess when I think of trans-global, I almost think of like going to the next globe. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I guess, I, yeah, I'm not sure. Anyway, I don't actually know what these words mean. But yes, uh, this is our first episode where you're extremely far away. Yeah. And I think, um, I think it's going to work. What do you think? Yeah, me too. Yeah. I think so. So you live in Melbourne now? Yeah, it's Mel. Uh, I, I can't quite pronounce it the way they pronounce it here, but it's like Melbourne, Melbourne, Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was actually recording my other podcast, and uh, I was saying that um, uh, if you're an American, like going to another country, Australia is like probably the easiest place to go of all the countries in the world. <laughs> Even more than London or England. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've only been to London once or twice, but I think like I don't. It feels a little closer in some ways. I can't quite put my finger on why. Yeah, that's funny. Well, there's probably a lot of driving, right? Like it's a driving. Yeah, there's, and uh, I assume there's like a lot of roads and stuff, whereas <laughs> England's a little bit more of like it's farther from America geographically. Well, it is. It, well, one thing that is true is that Australia is the same size as the United States, so um, your kind of sense of geography is it doesn't need to be remapped you know um yeah um but uh i don't know i think like just the it feels like a lot of the languages i think is probably a little closer i don't know they use the word soccer here like it's really <laughs> <laughs> is that is your is uh is your son like playing soccer is that no no i just i was talking to someone but um uh, i was surprised that they use the word soccer at all actually yeah yeah yeah, it's funny. That's cool. So it's been an easy transition, except for I assume the jet lag. Yeah, the flight, the the, the journey was was horrible. I mean, just no other way to put it. But um, <laughs> but uh, but we after a week we're fine. And now my son's in school here, and he you know, he really likes it. So oh yay yeah yeah it's um it's I have to say the scheduling the the recording time was surprisingly kind of difficult in my opinion. So yeah, the math was like very hard to do for some reason. I don't know why there's something about the day change. Cause so we're recording and it's a Thursday night for you and it's a Friday morning slash noontime for you. Right. right it's Thursday for you. Yeah. Or sorry, it's yeah. Thursday night for me. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's just weird. Like it, there's no way that that doesn't feel kind of weird. Yeah. It's, it's like, yeah. Oh yeah, it's tomorrow for you. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and it's like when I work when I talk when I want to talk to people on like in the U.S. like there's a pretty narrow window of time each day, and um, and so if I want to talk to like four different people, I have to like spread that out over four different days. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like you're probably gonna have to get really good at scheduling. I feel that a little being on the West Coast with my parents on the East Coast, where I just ended up scheduling time to talk in the mornings because <laughs> it was like by the time you get home from work and you're tired and it's like seven o'clock and it's 10 you know yeah. it's just you have to be like a little bit more diligent yeah 
So yeah. Otherwise, I mean, the department here has been super friendly, and uh, I have like a really nice office here, and uh, um, nice. Yeah, yeah. and and, um, <laughs> and it's, so anyway, it's been it's it's actually it's I, we've settled in a lot faster than I thought we would have. Nice. Have you done any trips yet to like I don't know the 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 rest of Australia? No, we're uh, we're gonna do that actually. This because like you know my son's in school now, so like we can't we don't want to take him out all the time. But um, but they have like an interesting system where they're like ten weeks in school with two weeks off. Um, and so, oh, nice. it's, that sounds great. so the, so the vacations yeah. are pretty regular. And so we'll, and I think, so we've been around Melbourne a little bit, but we haven't been outside yet. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. That's such a cool adventure. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, maybe I'll just, uh, I'll just give a quick shout out to Nick Tierney actually, cause uh, I met him. He's, he's in the department here and I know he's a listener. So anyway, good guy. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's great. He's an engaged listener. Yes. <laughs> I feel like I know him. but i don't think i've ever met him but (laughs) yeah cool excellent oh so i um this is totally random but i i I, I was recalling your conversation about uh playing movies on your alexa show (laughs) yes yeah i mean on your your echo show sorry um and um a friend of mine who i guess uh, from like back in the day um uh, this is my friend Noah, who apparently listens. He he reminded me that um, back in the day we would we would take movies. This is like they were on like VHS tapes now, and we would transfer them to like audio cassettes. Oh my god! And so that we could listen to them in the car. So he was like an OG. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I was doing this spirit. before it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's probably a subset of people out there who like totally get it. And then <laughs> and then there's most people who think it's really weird. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, but uh, I think like for, for movies that you like really love and obsess over, like is a totally logical thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you it's like if you're the type of person who just has a very like active imagination, maybe where you can just essentially like see the movie in your head as you're listening to the audio. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Which may be different. I don't know if active imagination is quite the right word for that, but like someone who has like memorized the visuals of the movie enough to like fill in the blanks. Right. So. <laughs> okay. So the, the the next time, so when I saw you in Baltimore, actually, I, I think I told you that I had like some follow up beef for you, mm-hmm. and it was related to. In the last episode, we talked about. Um, I, I raised this issue of whether like a good data analysis could lead to like a bad outcome, and you seem to think that. Um, the answer was no, like a good data analysis, like almost by definition leads to a good outcome. And we, we didn't really define what good and bad meant, but <laughs> um, <laughs> it would probably... It needs to do we, we that. Could, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I wanted to just raise one scenario for, for you um, and uh, and see what you think about it, okay? So suppose like you have, uh, let's say just a simple like uh, randomized trial, like a randomized experiment, okay? And you have two arms, there's like a treatment arm and there's a control arm, and this could be really in any setting. Um, and But you're trying to um, uh, trying to evaluate the effectiveness of something in like a small setting. And depending on the outcome of this experiment, you might like expand it to some like larger setting, right? So you can think like you might be trying a new drug and then if it works, you're going to like up, you know, give it to everyone in the community or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you do this uh, experiment, and the data comes in, and you do you calculate you do your analysis, you calculate let's say the mean in each group, and you have some confidence intervals, uh, and let's say the difference between the two groups is modest, let's say, uh, and if you must, you could say you know the p value is I don't know point oh 
nine or something like that. So not super significant, mm-hmm. right? Um, and but there is like an improvement. Let's say the treatment improved the situation, whatever that means. Um, and so there is an improvement. It's just not. But there's a lot of noise, so it's not like quote unquote statistically significant. Okay. Mm-hmm. So far, so good. Yeah. Wait. So you're saying there's an experiment. It's like a early phase clinical trial situation, and it's. A not it's it's an improvement, but it might not be significant. But it would be to use a terrible phrase from the industry, like trending positive, for example. Yes. Okay. So you do this analysis, and let's say you go to the you're the analyst, or I'm the analyst, and uh, uh, I go to the bosses and present this analysis, right? So so I maybe I have a plot, maybe I have a table, whatever it is. Okay. Um, And and they have to make a decision about what to do next. Okay. And one executive says, there's too much uncertainty, even though there's an improvement, there's too much uncertainty, we can't make a decision based on such fuzziness, you know, we're not going to do anything, okay? Uh And another executive says, "Um, there's a lot of uncertainty, but the benefit was like positive, it was in the direction that we want it to go, and uh, the implications could be huge if it's true, you know, so we want to go forward because if it's true, it's going to be like a major impact, right? Um, So I'm willing to take the risk, even though there's all this noise in the data. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so first, of my, my first question is: is I is there either executive right or wrong? <laughs> and, you know that's funny because when you were describing that, I actually had that question going in the back of my head. Okay. <laughs> Where I was like, "Oh, this is interesting because, like, I guess, uh, you know, good executive." I was like, "This is a this is like." Like behind the curtain of Hillary's brain, in my head I was like, "Yeah, good executives make gut calls like that. Like they decide, they like take the big bet and they say we're going to move forward." And then I was like, "Well, really, you can measure all of these things and you can decide like what could the potential upshot be versus the downside." And like, I feel like that's kind of like what you're taught in business school almost is how to like scope out different scenarios and then make decisions based on that. Right. Um. So they could say like, "Oh, like." we have a 60% chance or whatever of this. I mean, I, <laughs> I feel like I'm being a bad statistician. So you do the appropriate like Bayesian or whatever, like you do the appropriate math to be able to say the sentence, like there's a 60% chance that the next one will be a big win. <laughs> and so, and like of this dollar value, and if the cards fall this way, which has, you know, an X percent chance of happening, then we will become the biggest company of all time or, you know, whatever the outcomes, <laughs> the like wild dream. Yeah. So let me just finish, let me just finish the story and we can, and I want to see what you think. So let's say the executive who wants to like, to implement it, you know, go forward, take the risk. Let's say that person, they win out. Right. So we, we go forward and we like, you know, apply, let's say it's a drug or so maybe we, or it's a treatment of some sort. We give it to the huge population and then we go forward and it's like big deal. Um, and it turns out that actually it didn't work. Right. So there's no improvement really. Um, and assuming there was maybe some sort of assessment while this was happening. Um, uh, and there's no improvement and it turns out the whole thing's a bust. Right. Mm-hmm. Would you say that the, in retrospect, the data analysis was bad? No, I wouldn't. Would you? I don't think so, right? I, I don't think you could blame the analysis for like this this, this risk that was taken, right? I mean, I think there's nothing in the analysis that could have really prevented that from occurring, right? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Um, yeah, and like, I mean, I think the only place where you'd be able to blame the analyst is if, or like the analysis itself, is if the uncertainty wasn't sufficiently communicated, which does get into sort of our, um, you know, I, data science is a science and or the art of data science, <laughs> like just like the communication aspect and what what are ways of presenting uncertainty that have kind of psychologically the right impact that you think they should have in order to impact that executive sufficiently so that they can make this decision appropriately. And yeah. So- I mean, I think I agree. Like if you had shown a plot that like didn't have confidence intervals, it was, it was just like two points. Right. Um, then I think like okay, that's problematic, right? Cause you're not showing any uncertainty. Um, and the person that you're communicating with has no way to assess that, that there's no sense about any uncertainty. Right. But assuming you did kind of communicate it in the usual way and assuming the usual way was correct, um, you know, I, there's really not much else to be done. Like at some point, someone's going to make a decision and it's and the decision's either going to be good or bad. But um, the analysis, on the other hand, like it just is what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I sense your unease. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I like because then my head was going to like the, the wonderful world of managing up in industry. <laughs> I don't know how much... <laughs> How much, like, when I say the, like, phrase managing up, how much emotional reaction do you have to that? Uh, I have no reaction, really. Okay, okay. So you've never managed that before, is what I... <laughs> uh, I think, I, no, like, I, I... Well, I, I think I probably have had to do it a little, but not too much. No. Okay. Like, not... Not like what you see in the show Silicon Valley, like, how people manage up to Gavin Belson. No, no. You know, it's like... Like, if you have certain executives, like, you're full-time... If you are reporting to an executive who really needs to be managed up to, like, your full-time job is, like, figuring out exactly what to say. Like, you make the decision for them, and then you figure out, like, the things to say and, like, the way to approach them to get that decision to come to life. <laughs> and so it's, like, that's not the only aspect of managing up, I guess, but, like, it's a big one. <laughs> And so, um, and so in that sense, I'm like, oh, well, you know, if you're, if you're like the head of the data team and you're presenting this analysis and you know the quirks of the executive and how they make decisions, then you probably have made judgment calls about how you present the data in support of the case you want to make and the case and the conclusion that you hope they come to. Well, yeah. so you can only do that if you have decided beforehand what is the correct answer, right? What is the correct decision, right? But that's like most of the time, that's what executives at companies, they depend on the people below them to do that constantly because they can't make all the decisions for the company all the time. No, I, I understand. Yeah. And I think I, I think another manifestation of the idea of managing up is this notion that decisions don't get made in meetings. Um, and so it's... Um, that that happens a lot in academia, <laughs> uh, but um, it's um, it's one of these things where like you, you don't go to a meeting unless the decision's already been made, right? But um, mm-hmm. it's but on the other hand, I think at some point, like even if you make that decision, right? Like let's say you're the analyst, right? Then you making that decision when you make that decision that okay, this is the right thing to do. You're not a data analyst anymore. Like you've just changed hats. I think that's my proposition. I guess. Yeah. Well. I mean, no, I actually, I think this is, this really gets to a core, this is, I think there's ambiguity in the role around that. And then I think that 
like any situation where you have ambiguity in decision-making authority, it's like we don't talk about we. It's the fire we all dance around, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where it's like, oh yeah, we um, because I do view my. I mean, I obviously I'm the type of person who has opinions, <laughs> and likes to have things come. I've away. heard that. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just like, yeah, I view part of my, I view part of the value I add to a team that I'm working with is making decisions, like, like processing the data to the point of making a decision and being like, you know, I am one of the only people in this room who's capable of absorbing this data and making a decision based on it. And like, and that, that sounds cocky, but I mean, just like, you know, if you have like a pile of complex data then the person who dives through and really looks at it, like as a PI, I'm sure you f- feel this all the time where it's like the person who kind of does the analysis, it's like, well, what conclusion did you come to? Like, I trust you. Um, and so I feel like I play that role in the teams I met both at, in both my jobs. And so um, it's, I do view that as a key part of being a data analyst versus the idea that you're just like a compute engine and you create an analysis and it's super objective and you present it to whoever's running the show and then they're the one that makes the decision. Because then I think, I think it's just not even honest about how decisions are made, you know? No, I think actually you raise, this is a great point, which I think even in uh, outside, even in an academic setting, I think more and more now, um, you know, I see this a lot. Data scientists, you know, they have their hands in the data. They're dealing. They're working with it every day. And even when I collaborate with people who are like experts in a certain disease or whatever, um, uh, they, you know, often they'll be like, "Well, what do you think?" Because you've been working with the data for the last like week, you know. And um, and I, I, some, there are times where like I don't want to make the call on whether you know this is important or not. Um, but um, but it's like because because of our proximity to the data, it's the, the often those decisions are those kinds of decisions are just kind of thrust upon us. And uh, and so one of the things I think that is I think frustrating for a lot of uh, maybe older school statisticians is that I think the because the data are so complicated and require like a statistician to really kind of get involved and get their hands kind of in the data. Uh, ultimately, uh, a lot of decision making authority is kind of thrust upon us, right? Um, and whereas perhaps in the, I don't know, it, it was probably true in the past in some way, but I don't know. But I think. Uh, there's always been this traditional notion that, like, you know, we we summarize the evidence in the data, and then other people make some decision about it, right? Um, but totally, yeah. But that line has been blurred. That boundary has been blurred so much. I think just because the data are so complex now that you have to, going into the data, you have to have an understanding of like the problem and everything, uh, and uh, it's just like you're too involved now, basically. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. And I think, I mean, I actually think it even goes deeper than just the complexity of making decisions of the type of data. Although I think that's, I think that's sort of part of it. I I think that's probably a key part of it, but um, yeah, I think that's a key part of it. And the idea that I wanted to convey is that the way that we had, we've talked in the past about how like in the DevOps world, it used to just be operations and then kind of Google and concurrently like the rest of tech decided that the people who like, the people who like run the server should also be creating software to fix, to like automate their jobs. Um, And then like iterating on that. And so like we have shipped to this, um, we've shifted to this culture where full stack ownership is 
like a big thing. <laughs> and so, and I was thinking about this in terms of the data scientists and this thought is not totally formed. So this might not even really be a cogent point, <laughs> but it's like, you know, we always like, oh, data scientists, it's such a difficult um, thing to define. And what does it mean? And I was like, well, I guess when you think about scientists, that is difficult to define. And if you just said to someone, I'm a scientist, there would still be like, in almost infinite options for what they actually are. Um, yeah. <laughs> but all of them sort of, <laughs> all of them sort of involve this, like, I solve a problem by doing research on it. And so, like, part of solving the problem in an in industry slash data science setting and in the academic setting is, like, making a decision about what to do next at the end of it. <laughs> and so... Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think you're right that maybe the type of people, the type of expectations on the job description before kind of like the pre DevOps world of statistics, where it's like, oh, and then you go to your compute resource and you get the numbers crunched and then they deliver it back and then we make the decision. Like, I just think we've shifted away from that world in almost every way possible, like in terms of the tooling we're using, in terms of what people expect, like, and I totally agree with you that there that's like an unstated thing that people have no training or support for. <laughs> and so it's actually really hard and super frustrating for people. Yeah, I think, well, I think it, I would just say that I think it has something to do with the complexity of the data, just because I think uh, the more complex com or complex the data are, um, the more decisions that you have to make about what to do with them at various stages of the analysis. And I think so a lot of decision-making authority is kind of delegated to the data scientists because um, they're working on the data. And so I'm just a, a, like a simple academic example would be, you know, if I work with someone, and I've actually, I've actually done this, you know, if they're working with like an experiment and there are five mice in the control group and five mice in the in another group and they just take one measurement out of them you know like that's pretty simple i can take those five number or the ten numbers you know and then do a t-test or something right um but and, and there's not a lot of pre-processing that has to go on beforehand but i think in the more complex the experiments are the data are and you have to do a lot of pre-processing there's, there's a myriad decisions that have to be made and um i have to make them you know, and so in order for me to make them, I need to be knowledgeable of the area. I need to be collaborating with these people. And I, and I basically become much, I'm neck deep in the business now, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's like, I, I totally agree. And I, that's sort of the point I'm trying to clumsily make too. It's like, it's this idea of like being able to own the entire decision-making process from end to end and like own the whole there's like appetite for people to just own the whole thing because it's so inefficient to be tossing back and forth like, oh, okay, I looked at this. And then, and I'll, you see this in industry all the time. Um, this is like the number one complaint probably of every, probably every person li like listening who's been on a BI team <laughs> has like had this complaint where you have a business partner who comes to you and asks just for a specific number where they're like, oh, can you look up blah, -de blah, like, and send back a single number. Um, and then you know that they are in the pro they're in the middle of like that iterative process of making a decision. And this is like the next piece of evidence they need. And it's just like something that would take a data person, you know, like a day of like digging in and finding a problem and iterating. And it's going to take like weeks of like back and forth emails of like, Oh, can you actually look up this other number instead? And like, can you yeah, know, right. it's like, it's, there is like a genuine efficiency issue going on. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think it's probably, 
Well, so it's funny because like a concurrent train of thought I've been having recently is like, I mean, I think we've, we might've talked about this before, like the, um, so like there's, yeah, people called product managers in the real world, Roger, (laughs) you've heard of them, I'm sure. I've heard of them. Yes. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, this person who kind of like shepherds an entire project and, um, brings together the resources and keeps everyone like working toward it. And in, and in, they have like varying degrees of sort of authority and vision, but you know, and many tech companies, they actually have a, like, you know, Steve Jobs product manager, like, like sometimes they'll have a ton of, um, ton of vision and sometimes they're kind of executing on someone else's vision but um like i've long felt like so if you're a data like at etsy for example when i was doing a lot of um product support i would i'd be like working closely with a pm and it, there was like varying levels i worked with several pms and each of them had their own kind of skin in the game in terms of the decision making like they some wanted to play a more active role and some really were just happy to let me like do my thing um and and i've long felt like you know maybe a successful model for many tech companies might be to have pms be very formally trained in data analysis or like someone who's a good data analyst who has an inclination to be a product person that would be like a very positive career move for them (laughs) cuz then they could like do they could do all the product stuff and they could just do all the analysis for like experiments and opportunity sizing and all the things that you have to do to bring a product to life um versus when you're working with a data analyst that that work can feel kind of monotonous and like you are this compute engine where it's like Oh, I have to analyze another experiment, like, <laughs> like for something. Like, what was this again? I can't remember. I don't really care. Yeah. Is um, I mean, don't you think it's a little unrealistic to think that the product manager is going to be like doing all the data analysis? I mean, I think, um, I, I think when I think about this, I think like I think it's. I agree with you that it would be great for someone with data skills to like go into that role if only because then like the conversation that they have with the data scientists and the data analysts could be like a thousand times more efficient right i mean i think um i see the same thing with my collaborators you know the collaborators that i have that are you know have really good statistical and data skills like our work just moves forward so much faster right because they know they know what i do and i kind of know what they do and so they have reasonable expectations for what i can produce and you know and um and so we don't have to like go round and round asking well why can't you do this or why didn't this work you know and it's like um it's just um it's just so much more efficient if both have a common base of knowledge like that yeah i mean well i think i think you're right that that it can be like a very good it can be a very good productive collaboration um, you're also dealing with problems that are fairly complex, right? Like scientific problems where like like climate data or like pollution data isn't, uh, <laughs> this isn't like the 10 mice situation. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so versus, I mean, well, this is, I don't know. See, I feel like I'm arguing against an earlier version of myself because, um, for example, like <laughs> when Sean Taylor came on here and just knowing like some of the tooling Facebook has generally that they've um, talked about publicly, like plan out um, their A-B testing framework, um, they they do have the attitude of like, well, we should, um, people are going to be making decisions with data that who are not data people. And, you know, we would love to make them all extremely competent in data skills and one way where they're trying to 
accomplish that is to create tooling that makes them like kind of black box tooling that makes them perform pretty good statistical methods without that much effort. Um, and then they can just focus on interpreting those outcomes rather than having to like conceptualize the entire problem. Right. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah. And I guess what I was trying to say, or like kind of what I was advocating for is the idea that of taking someone who is a data person and, and I think they do exist. I feel like there's actually kind of a lot of them who do care a ton about the application and want to see it come to life and would be energized. I guess I'm not sure who the right people are, but I know that like if you have planned an experiment yourself and you're really excited about the thing that's coming out, then you're like eagerly watching the experiment results and you like can't wait to analyze it, right? Right, yeah. And you're like, oh, like, and and that breaks frequently when you have like a data, a, an embedded data scientist or you have like a consulting data scientist or data analyst who's like, oh, I gotta analyze this A-B test, like don't really care. Um, <laughs> and so that is to me like kind of this, I guess the the thing I was talking about of like, oh, if you got the data analyst to care a lot about the business problem because they kind of feel a sense of ownership, then that can be an ideal situation. But then you would have to have a data analyst who's also happy to spend most of their time actually like wrangling engineers and like creating slide decks to present to, you know, the C-levels and like all these other business things that PMs do all the time. <laughs> so, well, uh with this conversation in mind, uh, is it, uh, I'm gonna—is it okay if I read an email that we got recently because it's related? I think. Sure. So we got an email from someone who, um, who wants to remain anonymous, but um, it, I thought it was interesting. So it's a little bit long. So just give me a second. So uh, it says, I recently heard misgivings from a former U.S. Treasury official about a data-focused agency called the Office of Financial Research, uh, which was created by the Dodd-Frank Act to monitor financial or economic data and raise flags about financial crises. Uh, this person, a Wall Street slash MBA type, said the OFR, the Office of Financial Research, was envisioned as a plug-and-play data robot, um, but was acting more like a, quote, policy shop. Uh, the agency did not. Sorry, the agency did get into hot water for raising questions about increasing regulation on certain industries, and I think the insinuation was the OFR was sticking its neck out with memos on policy instead of acting like a giant nonpartisan financial seismograph. Political calculations aside, do you have any thoughts on this being a constructive critique, or does this sound like a naive assumption that data science slash analysis can be automated? Uh, OFR employs hundreds of PhD economists and analysts, so it's not like it's just a big computer. Um, so I feel like this is a, kind of the issue that we're talking about, which is that like there was a sense perhaps that this office was created to just kind of crunch the numbers, uh, but here they are kind of like making recommendations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Inter interesting. Wait, so I guess can you play again the I like like the central problem in the email? Like, <laughs> like it was that. I think the issue is that this office, this Office of Financial Research, was created to kind of collect data, basically. Collect data about the financial industry uh, and to kind of prevent, so to kind of do like an early warning system for like the 2008 financial crisis, right? Um, and so, so to right. monitor the health of the system to make sure that, you know, we can have, a, uh, basically we know what's going on and, and we can prevent things from happening before they happen. Um, and I think perhaps the idea was that they would collect the numbers, they would publish the data, whatever, and then other people would kind of like make decisions based on that data, right? Policymakers, things like that. <laughs> yeah. 
just put up another dashboard and we'll all monitor it <laughs> right and so it turns out that they have a yeah. lot of smart people who work in this office and they have their own ideas about like what should or should not be done and i guess we're writing memos about like re making recommendations about certain policies and whatever and that was not what their job was supposed to be yeah okay okay i see with great power <laughs> right so people were expecting a dashboard and what they got was like people making recommendations <laughs> yeah yeah yep I mean, ugh, I do have this moment hearing that of just like, why, when in the history of professional world, I feel like back in like the, I don't know, when you had like kings and queens, <laughs> it was like very clear who was making decisions. <laughs> and like, why is it now that we all like are afraid to talk about it? And then there's all this ambiguity and then people are kind of doing it sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, how do we get here? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have... I'm not sure, honestly. There's probably someone who has studied this, like some historian or whatever, uh, who could probably give us some insight. But I think um, there... I don't know. I think it's. I think this has probably been always been a problem, even in the time of kings and queens. I think there have been weak kings, you know, who like relied on their courts to like you know committees. I mean, I think there's probably a similar phenomenon in the sense that I think strong leadership is like just uncommon. Well, it's. I mean, yeah. Not to. It's funny because. Um... You know, not trying to shill for Stitch Fix, but, you know, maybe a little. Um, I do, like, this was something that our chief algorithms officer, Eric Coulson, has been super passionate about. Like, it was kind of the whole, like, founding principle of the department, which was this idea of, like, the full ownership of problems and the fact that data scientists need to own the full problem. And and I, I can't... I can't honestly sit here and say that I always was 100% on board with that, especially coming from the situation where I was like a consulting um, data analyst and I cared a lot about like A-B testing and um, it, you know, it was, I, w I had to be convinced because it usually involves data scientists having, you know, we have kind of this like famous, uh, famous blog post from our um, VP of data platform engineer shouldn't write ETL, uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> which like. <laughs> and so, you know, and it is, it's like, a, it's a, it's a paradigm shifting, um, it's a paradigm shifting expression of that philosophy where it's like the people who write ETL should be the people who own the problem and they're like, you know, they're motivated to maintain the ETL based on it. And I'm not, I don't think anyone at our company would sit here and act like it's all perfect and easy and that it's like, oh yeah, life's so easy, but I've, the more I've worked here and just been in the in the job longer, like in the industry longer, the more I do kind of believe in this philosophy because exactly what this is exactly is a good example of this breaking down almost immediately where it's like if you ask people to just if you hire smart people and you ask them to just like create reports but not make decisions like they're going to start making decisions <laughs> like like people want there is a strong desire to own the problem. Um, and not just be like a compute resource. Yeah, and I think, the, and the kind of people that you're hiring, if they're like smart people, like they're not just going to sit around and twiddle their thumbs, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, and it is, and that's where I kind of like, you know, early on was talking about DevOps, where like this is true more than in data, the data world, where it was the same thing with operations, where it's like people who maintain servers, they had tons of ideas of how to do it better and what they could automate. And, you know, it's just like you, you kind of like unleash that creativity and a bunch of stuff happens, a bunch of good stuff happens. And so it's, 
I'm on I'm on board. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, can I can I follow up a little bit on cloud computing, the resource, not the horse? <laughs> Actually, can you follow up first on the horse, uh, and then the resource? <laughs> I have no information about the horse. <laughs> All right. Okay. Just the resource then. <laughs> Um, well, there was this uh, tweet by Jake Vanderplas. Um, he, he he tweeted out a screenshot of a company. I actually went to the company's website. They're selling something called a private cloud server. Oh, are you ready mm-hmm. for this? It's called the company's called Ansley, I think. Um, the private cloud server is like it's just like having the cloud, except it's on your desktop, <laughs> and it loads really quickly, and you don't have to worry about like AWS charges and things like that. Um, and, uh, it's like, it's way better. Wait, so you, you just like, it, does it actually look like your desktop? Like it just looks like a desktop? It looks like, yeah, like, like a, like a, it's like a kind of a rectangular box basically. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, I mean, I think you and I would call it a computer, but they call it a private cloud server. Oh, oh, I get it. I like couldn't I was like oh so they open up a something on your computer so you're saying that this is literally like a physical device that you buy exactly it's like the cloud on your desk oh my god I totally missed the key thing in that description (laughs) well actually the 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 important thing here is that they have a name for it actually and this is a name I've heard a little bit uh, recently um it's called edge computing yeah Wait, but this is, isn't it just like Chromebook computing? It's, <laughs> no, it's that... not, it's not Chromebook computing because there's like, it's just like a standalone machine, basically. But Chromebook is a standalone machine. No, but it relies on like cloud services to actually like do anything, right? I mean. Well, wait, but what does this rely on? I'm so confused. <laughs> it's, no, I understand. No, basically, it's like, imagine if you could move AWS onto your desktop. <laughs> <laughs> I mean um okay so it's like a device that is a computer that they're calling something else right it is a, it is literally a desktop computer that has like a hard drive for storage <laughs> and um and uh and a compute and like CPUs for computing and uh, you can disconnect it from the network and it will still work okay so you're like building your little AWS I'm not explaining this well <laughs> I think it's just so. I what is? I feel like I should just look this up. Uh, I'll I'll send you the link after. It's like I mean I didn't go through it in detail, but basically it's like they're selling a computer and they're calling it. But they're but you know selling computers is kind of lame, right? And so, um, but selling the cloud is super cool, right? And so, how do you? But they're not actually selling the cloud, right? So the, the the compromise is they call it a private cloud server. Yeah. Oh, man. So there is one serious thing, though, about this, uh, which is this edge computing uh, idea, which is, I think is a real thing. The idea of being like, how do you push as much computing onto, usually it's going to be a phone, but it could be like a computer or a laptop or whatever, like rather than doing all the computing in the cloud, right? Um, and um, and I don't know if you saw, there was an article about the people who wrote the, um, 
the uh, hot dog or not app for Silicon Valley. I, I did not. I did not dig into that one. I did remember the headline though. <laughs> well, I, I, one of the things that fascinated me about that article was that they had a lot of discussion of like where the computing should occur and like should you do it in like Google's cloud or should they should it, should they do it on the phone because it's obviously a lot faster if you do it on the phone. Uh, but then right. you, have, you have to use different yeah. kinds of models, right? And so like this edge computing thing is like is like the next incarnation. I feel like you know, if you look at the timeline of computing it's like you have like mainframes and then you have like the desktop or then you have like the cloud and now we're back to like they don't call it the desktop anymore they call it edge computing now so yeah <laughs> i see what you're saying it's like it's we're kind of in this like it's like we're converging but it keeps going above and below you know yeah it's the pendulum has swung yeah. the other way yeah <laughs> right yeah <laughs> and so it's just now we're and <laughs> I, I guess in my head it sort of makes sense is like right you want all the benefits of cloud computing but you want them at home but it's not like you just want a desktop <laughs> I don't know <laughs> uh, well I mean I like I think the thing that is always strange to me about this discussion um, is that I feel like within um, industry applications it's like there's only one solution like it's the solution is to use aws or somewhere like to use other people's servers essentially like the idea that you would set up your own servers uh, for a website is you know pretty pretty old school at this point no i agree i think the question is like if you're doing like this fancy machine learning stuff I mean, I think there's always going to be a server element to it, uh, but they have, I can't remember what the terminology is, like they have these models that you kind of like, you train on like huge cloud servers, whatever, right? But then you kind of export the model to like your phone and then the model's kind of fixed, is like you don't have to do any training on the phone, but then you can kind of add, you can integrate it with like other data so that you can like use the model. Yeah, you run you you run the predict function <laughs> Right. Exactly. on yeah. the phone. Right. Yeah, yeah, but it's... um. Which is, no, I mean, I get that use case completely. And I think that is a really interesting, I don't, I, I actually don't even feel like it's that interesting. I think it's just like UX research of like, oh yeah, people are expecting answers in this amount of time. And I mean, I, I think, I think ideally everything would be on the cloud so that you're using the customer's like resources as little as possible. But like, if you're constrained then the next solution would be to do the computing on the phone directly see i don't know um, i don't know if i agree with you i don't know i don't know if the ideal situation has everything on the cloud yeah well i mean <laughs> <laughs> not surprised to hear that yeah um, i guess uh, <laughs> i, I... <laughs> Usually our fights are more planned. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. I, <laughs> but I think, um, I mean, I think just in terms of like in an ideal world, you're not constrained by your cell service and you're not constrained by your data speed. And like in a world where like, like if I put on my Steve Jobs turtleneck for a moment, um, <laughs> like, and or Richard from Silicon Valley, where like everyone has the internet, we build a new internet. Like, like in a world where you don't have the constraints of like the current cell tower infrastructure, uh, I still think it would be better on the cloud then. But 
given the constraints that are like here for at least five years, I guess. I don't know. I'm just making that up. Like then, yes, you would want to do it locally. Well, I think the only other comment I have on this is that, um, and of course, I will make this comment because it's Apple related. Um, but I think um, like Apple has vested, invested like a ton of money and buying companies, etc. Uh, to kind of allow for like a lot of machine learning to happen on the phone, uh, as opposed to like on servers. And it, obviously, the reason they're doing that is because they don't have the capability, they don't have like Google like capabilities. Um, and so um, they're investing in all these other kind of like what do you i guess what they call edge computing now um and i think um so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out i mean obviously i hope you know apple wins yeah not so <laughs> i'm not surprised that apple's doing that uh and i'm not i mean i feel like maybe this is why i'm a google person and you're an apple person <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah i don't know i don't know i mean but like here's the thing that i i keep thinking well I just don't believe that the right solution is to have someone have something that's like super powerful and that can be made obsolete fairly quickly, a physical device that can be made obsolete fairly quickly with advances in technology. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if you have to have something that's like fancy and can run this like super new model, I guess I think that the the modeling will outpace the technology almost always and therefore a better user experience would not be dependent on the user buying technology that can run the models. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I, I don't concede defeat, but I we, we can save this. We can continue this discussion in a future episode. <laughs> like, there's like a, like, I might have lost this battle, but I'll win the war. Yeah, we're having a pause. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite from the office he's like he might have won the battle but i'm going to win the next battle <laughs> all right um <laughs> i just uh, um i just want to skip down to one more thing is that okay sure sure yeah so i i, I just want to have a just a quick discussion about this uh whether data represents ground truth um so uh, i don't think we have to have a long discussion about this but so angela Bassa. Um, uh, tweeted this is a while back actually um, and there was something about IQ versus uh, college major and gender I don't know some analysis uh, and uh, and she tweeted that you know for the millionth time quote data quote unquote isn't ground truth data are artifacts of systems and boy are is this system and its metrics broken so um, I feel like I've heard this a few times, not just from her. Um, this idea that, like, you know, and I think it ha you know, like that that data doesn't represent ground truth, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to, just, I don't know, I just wanted to talk to you about it because I feel like, on the one hand, I totally get what she's saying, um, which is that you know, data collection is driven by you know the questions that you ask and how you collect the data uh and um and and whatever biases that you may introduce into that process um and so i think from a scientific point of view totally i think everyone understands that but i think on the other hand it's it's a little bit more complicated it's a little bit more uh, complicated is not the right word uh i think you have to be a little bit careful when you say things like that especially in today's environment because it's like it's tempting to say that there's just no truth out there right i mean yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I get exactly what you're saying. And I agree. I mean, I think I'm in, I'm, I understand what she's saying in spirit. And 
like presumably this uh like IQ thing probably shows that like male math majors have the highest IQ or so you know something that's like okay well like let's let's not yeah it was something like that any conclusions yeah yeah and so um and like I think I would just express it really differently kind of like what you're saying of um I would say something more along the lines of I like I guess I I would focus more on like assumptions like um like like if you observe uh like IQs of majors I do think that's like capital T truth like if you've done statistics and sampling whatever correctly that's capital T truth but it's of almost always a smaller question than what people want it to be or like the conclusions they draw are like far out of scope of the study yeah i mean i think there's like a tautological thing that you can say which is that like if you measure something then that number represents what you measured it's i mean i mean it's just it just is what it is yeah exactly but what that number means is a totally different thing right 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 yeah no and i i see what you're yeah i see what you're flagging where it's like you can't if you if you it's a it's I mean, well, this is how I always feel as a statistician. It's like, I'm going to make sure that it's like very clear that I'm making this one nuanced point instead of this other nuanced point. And like, I'm pretty sure for most people, it's like, like, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But like, I do think, yeah, the nuanced point isn't like, like, I don't like the idea of saying that observing data, I I want to say, I, I think both of us probably feel strongly that if you, like, sample and observe data correctly, that is a way of inferring capital T truth if you're, like, a frequentist. <laughs> if you like that. <laughs> if you like that framing of the problem, which I kind of do. Um, and so it's, like, it yeah, it's, like, not calling into question the fundamentals of, like, statistical inference so much as it is, like, you know being a good statistician and i do think this is like good quote-unquote statisticians do this of just always qualifying what you've concluded and almost always lowering expectations of everyone involved about like what you have concluded from the data that you have observed um yeah and i think i i just want to there's one cautionary tale that i have which is that you know um in the area of like a reproducible research, right? So I think there was like a totally reasonable discussion uh, that started probably 15, 20 years ago about the need for like research to be reproducible and to make data available and make code available so that we can kind of make, uh, we can reproduce everyone's findings. And that's totally reasonable, I think. Um, but I think that discussion has evolved to the point where um, basically politicians are literally saying that like science is not reliable and the science is not reproducible. And I think it's one thing for scientists to say, like, we need to improve the reproducibility of our work. Uh, but I think there's a lot of people, there, there are some people, not a lot, some people out there who are saying that like, basically no science is reproducible and it's all crap. Right. And I think that's like, that's the kind of thing that gets headlines, but it's like not it's you have to be i mean i think we can all ex- examine ourselves and say like we could all be doing a little bit better um but i think it's you got to be careful that like that there's no unintended consequences of this line of of this kind of this kind of black and white kind of thinking because now we definitely have we for sure have politicians who kind of take advantage of the natural insert or the kind of like the 
dis- discussions that go on between scientists and say, look, look, these are scientists, they say everything's like crap. And so we don't, why should we believe anything? Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's funny that you said that because I was, I also immediately started jumping down the politics route. Um, I saw a couple of nights ago, I saw Al Franken speaking uh, in San Francisco and like it was so great <laughs> what a guy he's like a really really funny and caustic but in like a charming way and like just so smart kind of like stunningly smart and like and like he made me cry twice like it was just i was like i was like at the end i was like what happened to me like like this is amazing like <laughs> he was just a skillful you know he's a skillful skillful at what he does um and I did have this feeling of like, like when you were talking, I don't know why it elicited, elicited the reaction in me of just thinking about the gulf between him and our current president and just like the different way of interacting with the world. And like, it, there is this feeling in me of like, like we're being such A plus students and like figuring out exactly how to phrase uncertainty right and blah, blah, blah. But like, I just think we're like, in a fundamental way, like not even on the same page as like people who would go up in front of, you know, America and say like complete lies or, you know, it's like, it's just, I don't even think like, I think we think we're building a bridge, but we're not. <laughs> well, the bridge has got to be a lot longer, maybe. Are not building, yeah. Are like building a bridge isn't even the right, but like, yeah, are we operating within like the paradigm where like you like being absolutely correct and like, you know, like, like calling into question data as truth is like, ooh, be really careful and head your words slightly differently. Like, yeah, for like, for like scientific thinkers or like, you know, certain sets of the population, that's true that that nuance is important and like, and like they would pick up on the difference there. But like, I just think it's, I like, I, I don't feel like I'm making a good point and I'm not trying to get like overtly political or anything. It's just like I do. I'm at the point in this world that we live in where I feel like my eyes have been open to the fact that this way of intersecting with the world is like just one of many. <laughs> like it's not like like we should be clear that we're still only operating in the one part we intersect with. Right. Does that yeah. Make sense? Yes. No, I totally, yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. But that being said, I agree with you. <laughs> like, and I, I mean, and, like Angela's great. And I'm sure. Hopefully, she's not. You know, I think she's a listener, so it's not like a. It wasn't like it was terrible what she was saying. But I do think, like, kind of not feeding the, not fanning the fire, and giving examples of like questioning data as much as it is questioning the problem or conclusions from studies. Yeah, I think, I mean, it may seem like a subtle point, but I, you know, I just, I'm very sensitive now in today's kind of political climate uh, about giving people the ammunition to kind of like, you know, (laughs) do bad things, basically. Yeah, I just think it's so cute that you like think this will (laughs) help. That's a fair point. No, yeah. I mean, no, you're you're totally right. I think it's like totally right. It's it's just so like optimistic, you know. <laughs> I still have hope, yeah. Yeah. I just don't think that people who are on like who who I think the people who like call data into question are aware that they're not being scientific. They're not like following the paradigms of good science. They're like they have other ways of feeling 
they have other ways of like constructing argument and making conclusions in their head that are and this is consistent with like making an argument that is like calling into question data even if they don't actually like scientifically believe that the data is in question is like consistent with how they're making arguments do you see what i mean yeah yeah no i I see what you mean yeah 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 all right well i don't i don't have much i don't have anything more to say about that but um yeah it's a good it's a good one to end on (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right um i think uh i think we're good